Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. And I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal and Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? I'm good. It's a it's a lovely rainy morning, so I'm just enjoying that. We both have a cup of tea in mm, front of us. It's very so. cozy vibes. I literally have a fluffy blanket over my shoulders. I'm like burritoed up here. <laughs> it's great. It's very nice. How about you? Are you enjoying the the weather? I am. And I also enjoyed how sunny it was. I, I did not go outside because it was like 30 degrees and I don't like hot weather. But I like when it's sunny. So it was nice like earlier this week in Sydney. It was really warm. Spring is finally here and today and yesterday it's like rainy and cold and but it's still really cozy. My apartment's also very like cozy so it's nice when it rains and it's just good vibes. It's good vibes. I feel like I'm in a good mood because the weather has been nice. And it'll be daylight saving sort of soon which is good for us like City slickers. No, I love daylight savings. I think daylight savings would be also a lot better for me because I work the late hours and it won't feel as late. Like when you're working till 11 p.m. and it gets dark at 4.30, like only the first two hours of my shift are in daylight. Mm, I'm very excited. It feels really exhausting and like tiring when you feel like you're working throughout the night. But when it starts to get dark at like 7, 8 o'clock, solid half of my shift is in the daytime, which feels better. But yeah, no, weather's been good. You've also had some other exciting things happen for you. I have. I had a little essay published uh, last week in a journal called Politic. It's called Algorithmic Exclusion. You can find it on my Instagram. And it was so much fun to do. And it's so cool to see something I wrote presented mm. in a... It looks real. Yeah, it looks like it, an actual little... They, they did like the highlight quotes and uh, there's a little bio under my name saying he's got a little name in there you've got like a byline so i would urge everyone please check it out it's short you can you can read it it won't take you too long it's It's a good essay it's called algorithmic exclusion about uh, the roles that algorithms play in our contemporary world in uh, policing certain types of identities etc etc and i take more of a focus on the logic of algorithms themselves and and the way they actually function instead of looking at specific instances so yeah. I think you guys will like it. You should read it. It's a politics. good merging, I think, of both of our sensibilities yeah, for on sure. this podcast. Yeah, I agree. I think people who listen to the podcast would find it interesting. But yeah, so I guess it's it has been like a good week. Oh, I should update you guys on my electricity bill situation. It's solved. It's solved. Thank you to everybody. A few of you reached out to me and were like giving me tips on how to navigate it, which was really lovely of you. We ended up figuring it out after like going to war with my real estate that... Turns out the meter box was already accessible and I was just lied to. Love that for me, but I ended up getting a photo of it. They had actually just like fucked up the meter reading and charged me like three times the amount that I was supposed to be charged. So Yeah, they just got the one of the digits wrong. Yeah, and it added on like fucking six hundred. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's been solved. So like the bane of my existence is finally over, I feel like. After that, things just feel like significantly more peaceful because it was just like weighing on me so much. And like, I also forgot to update you guys last week, but I did get my couch. I feel like every episode I was like letting people know that I don't have my couch yet. And then when I actually got it, I forgot to tell you guys, I have a couch now and it's really nice and it was so worth the wait. And the guy that I bought it off was really lovely and it was just like a good experience. And my lounge room is like complete now. I also, my rug recently arrived my lounge is complete. I think the only incomplete part of my house now is my study because it still needs a rug. Um, and it's looking a bit bare in there. But otherwise, my apartment is like furnished and shit. This is a it's home It's looking now. good. Not only is it functional, but it looks good. Yeah, like it looks good. Like I'm happy with the aesthetic. It's cute. So that's been really nice. So it's nice to start. I feel like the last couple of episodes, we've started off a bit dire, like our moods. But this is good. We're both in a good mood. We've had a relatively good week. Mostly. Well, there's something else we forgot last episode as well. And I think it was maybe because of our sort of dire moods. But it was like the one year anniversary of the podcast. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we just missed it. I remember telling you the day we before. Oh yeah, tomorrow's the one year, and then and then we just tomorrow fun- came. We for- we didn't even we, talk about it. No, we didn't even talk. I about totally it. forgot until like literally right this. But second. we've been doing this for for a year. This is our forty fourth. Our episode. baby turned one. Yeah, we have a little one year old BB. Oh, how exciting! That means my Instagram's also a year old. Damn, yeah. I, that completely I missed that as well. Time isn't real. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's actually so exciting. Wow, I love that for us. What a positive start to today's episode. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, yes, I do have a little bit more follow-up, which is also good news, actually. Britney Spears, okay, for those of you who are randomly listening in, we have been covering Britney's conservatorship sporadically throughout all the episode follow-ups because we're very invested in her story. And as of a few days ago, Britney's father, who is her conservator and who she's been fighting against for like months now, has decided to vote to abolish the conservatorship extremely randomly. I mean, it's great news. But also, like, it's kind of weird. I was reading an article. There's a Vulture article. I'll link it in the sources. Like, discussing what the motives could be behind that. Because it just seems so weird that after all this time, he's, like, suddenly just kind of done a 180 and, like, changed his mind. Like, it's just weird. Um, They reckon that it's actually just very strategic maneuvering. It's a bit sneaky. And one of our listeners said, and I think this really (laughs) encapsulates it, was... It's very like, if I can't have her, no one can energy. <laughs> and I think that's true. Yeah, for sure. I actually think that's so true. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it is legal maneuvering, but I also think like, it's definitely a, well, if they're going to fight to get me off, then nobody can control her. Because he's got like, it's his need to control her is like weird and kind of incestuous and strange and like possessive. So I reckon, I reckon that's true. I think that's true. Yeah. I think that was kind of all our follow up. So like pretty, pretty short one. Than wow. our usual follow up. <laughs> we got through follow up before we even announced that we were doing follow up. I know. I just I just dived right into it. I thought we had announced follow up, but I guess we hadn't. Oh well, whatever. I'm in a good mood. Who cares about structure? So in terms of today's topic, we don't have like a solid one deep dive like we normally do. We are going to try segmented. Here are five things we want to talk about, and we're gonna like shove it all in one podcast, and it's gonna be good. It's a little variety episode. Yeah, well, I feel like the last time we did one of those, people really liked it. I think it can be a bit, like, snappy and, like, you know, it's easy to kind of fall into the drone of a long podcast, but when it's, like, quick, snappy, short segments, I think it can be good. So we are going to talk about five things today. We're going to talk about the Georgia Love scandal, which, I mean, a bunch of you probably know about it. For those of you who don't give a shit about reality TV, you probably don't, but it's quite spicy. You want to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about the Bondi Beach, Western Sydney tensions from over the weekend i mean any of you that follow my instagram will already know quite a lot about it because i wrote about it for pedestrian tv but we'll talk a bit about that then we are going to have a bit of a discussion on like covid and lockdown and new south Wales roadmap to freedom and kind of the way the state government has been approaching ending lockdown and some of our thoughts on that and then we are going to talk about a pretty I think I was going to say meaty section of our podcast, but I really need to get another word that isn't meaty. A substantial? Yeah, a substantial That's not as fun to a, say. a substantial like section on new cyber laws and the way the police have definitely been taking advantage of this pandemic and of this crisis to increase their surveillance. And then lastly, we are going to talk about the activism games, which is just I mean, we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I think it'd be a good way to end like a serious episode, which is something a little bit bizarre. Anyway, let's get into it. Okay, so for those of you who haven't been following the Georgia Love scandal, I will just give you a little bit of a recap. So Georgia Love is a journalist. She's a Channel 7 news reporter on TV, but she's best known for being on The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. I can't remember if she was The Bachelor. She thinks she was The Bachelorette. She was The Bachelorette. And that's how she got famous to the extent that she is now. So she's a journalist, but also an influencer. And she has like a lot of followers. She's got like 200,000 followers or something. I personally didn't really know anything about her until like I started working at Pedestrian TV because I that's when I started watching reality TV. But people really like her for the most part. Like I think she was definitely one of the more loved Bachelor, Bachelorette contestants and people trust her a lot as well because she's like a journalist. Like she's a news reader. You kind of expect her to be like educated and like smart and a lot of her commentary around especially recent seasons of like Bachelor in Paradise and stuff is quite sharp and witty and she seems to see things how it is. So she's quite I feel like the the public attitude towards her is 
I mean, up until now, quite positive. However, I mean, I never trusted her and um, I was fucking proven right, wasn't I? Because Very perceptive. <laughs> I just don't trust like white women in media, to be honest. And I always mm. end up right. So, but basically what happened is Georgia Love shared an Instagram story. It was a video of a cat sitting in the front window of an Asian restaurant. I think it was a Chinese dumpling place. Um, and the caption was shop attendant or lunch regarding the cat. Ugh. Yeah, no good, right? Um, which is obviously racist. Like that is obviously a racist thing to post given the fucking awful jokes people make about like Asian people like stealing and eating your pets and stuff like that. Like it's fucked up. So obviously people were instantly like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> like why would you post something like that? The backlash was swift and angry. I think about an hour after she uploaded that, she took it down and she ended up apologizing on her Instagram story. I'm going to read you part of her apology. This is kind of like the main part of it. So she said... Earlier, I posted a video of a cat in a restaurant window. I meant for this to be a joke about an animal being in a restaurant at lunch service time. I meant absolutely no insinuation about the type of animal nor the type of restaurant, but I see that my post did not come across like that and was offensive. I sincerely apologize for the oversight and offense I have caused. And then she goes on to say, like, thank you for everybody that called me out. Like, we really need to practice accountability. And that second part actually boils my blood more than the first part. But I will explain why. Because I think this apology is really shit. And I hate it. And I hate this whole situation. Because, I mean, first of all, so there's an account called Aussie Influencer Opinions, which is kind of like a watchdog for influencers. And they called out Georgia Love because they were like, you posted that at 10 a.m. Like it wasn't even lunch service hours, but okay. But I just think that the idea to pretend that you just had no idea that that had any racist connotations at all, like it was just completely an innocent mistake, is absurd. I'm sorry, everybody fucking knows those implications. Everybody is aware of these racist stereotypes and you cannot pretend that you just had no fucking idea. Like it's, I just don't buy that at all. And I especially don't buy it because Aussie influencer opinions then ended up digging up a meme from Georgia Love's Instagram from 2013 of a veterinary clinic next to a Chinese restaurant and then like a dog looking at it and the caption is like suspicious or something like that. And it's like another joke about like Chinese people eating dogs. Yeah, well, it's like we don't even really need that flashback to an earlier joke because that's the joke. That's the joke she made. That, yeah, that's why that's she just posted the jo- it. That's why she posted it. That's like, what was funny. It's it's a racist joke, but it's a, a well, it's a cliche joke. It's, it's, it's something yeah. that... I mean, it's not the first time you've heard this nonsense. Yeah, and like for yeah, her to- That's the joke. Yeah, literally for her to pretend like, oh, I just put that up because it's funny that a, an animal was in a restaurant. Girl, you literally said shop attendant or lunch, like with a cat. Like, stop. That was literally the joke. That was literally the joke. Like, that was why you posted it and you can't backtrack like this now. And people are really understandably angry about it and not buying her apology because instead of just owning that it was racist and being like a- I did this stereotype not really thinking about it and it was racist and I recognised that that was like a racist thing to say and like I obviously harbour these racist ideas and I'm going to try and unlearn them or something. Like, you know, like to at least acknowledge that you were being racist is like the first step to apologising is to acknowledging that there was a problem. But for her to be like, oh, that's not what this was at all but because you've perceived it that way and it's hurt you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you got offended is the vibe. And I just think that's already quite gaslighty anyway because it like assumes that it's your perception that's flawed, not the action, which is wrong because it was racist. And then what (laughs) annoys me the most is like the end being like, thanks for calling me out, guys. Like we need accountability. Are you really going to girlbossify a fucking apology about your own racism? Like I can't. To turn it into a like, yes, queen, you guys are killing it for calling me out on this. Love that accountability. Like, no, (laughs) No, like we are not going to turn this narrative into you congratulating us for noticing that you were being racist. Like that's not, we're not doing that. (laughs) Okay. So I just, the whole apology to me is flawed and like gaslighty and very girl bossy and very just like white woman. It's very white woman and I hate it. But I also just like want to talk about the way this is being discussed briefly because she has since been dropped uh, as an ambassador for like some shopping center that she was, you know, in the ads for. And also Channel 7 has taken her off air and put her on a desk job now. 
and you know she's been like obviously quite sad about it but a lot of the media coverage of this has centered Georgia Love's downfall and the tragedy of her downfall like over the real genuine hurt feelings of the Asian community and just like the optics of that and how it's it just exemplifies what we talk about all the time on this podcast which is like white tears right and like Ruby Hamad's white tears brown scars and how Georgia Love despite being the aggressor in this situation like despite being the person that did the offensive action it's her feelings that we're supposed to sympathize with we're we're supposed to feel bad for this swift reaction that she got to her own racist behavior like it's the consequences of her own actions I don't get why her feelings are the center of this narrative and I had this really really insightful conversation with a listener called James talking about it because we were talking about how like she was seen as educated and smart and worldly and her opinion had weight and held authority because she's a journalist and we really respected her but the moment she does something racist it's like oh I didn't know I didn't know like we just completely not we as an us but like people have just completely infantilized her suddenly she is the innocent white woman being attacked by these angry people of color when she was the one who did the racist thing and the idea that suddenly like it's believable that she was somehow uneducated or ignorant when her brand is built off being the smart reality star like she's not like other reality stars because she's smart and educated and has you know she comes from like this educated background and she has a career she's a career woman like she's you know a girl boss and all those ideas but the moment she fucks up suddenly she's like a little baby and we got to take care of her and she just didn't know any better and that is just like such classic white tears such classic infantilizing white women so they don't actually face consequences for their actions or when they do they're the victims it's like the strategic victimhood and I think like a lot of you are across that anyway we've talked about it like so much in other episodes about other situations but I just I did want to drive it home just like how like fuck we're seeing this in real time this is shit that we read about and we're seeing it in real time and just one other quick thing I wanted to say my last point is that I hate how much she's being victimized because she literally gained 11,000 followers after this happened this is why I don't trust white women because now she's become a a martyr for the white cause and like she has actually in a way profited from this racist behavior and all these people have flocked to her and they're gonna make her their little like snow princess and it's just like no like how are you gaining followers it's fucked the whole thing is fucked and it's especially unforgivable given the context of COVID and the anti-Asian hate mm. in the past two years. You can't pretend that you don't know about it's this. Like, like, girl, yeah. you've, you're literally a reporter during COVID. Given <laughs> that climate and this context, I'm not really sure what apology could have made up for that awful, awful joke. Also, she didn't even post the apology to her Instagram like, page. Like, it was a story oh, that yeah. disappeared it's after 24 hours. Thing. Yeah. There wasn't even a permanence to it, which, I mean, metaphoric. But anyway, that's my thoughts on Georgia Love. The second thing we're going to talk about is the Bondi Beach, Western Sydney tension, which honestly, national headlines. I'm sure all of you are kind of across it right now, but just on the off chance that you've been avoiding the news, which honestly would not blame you. The quick summary of what's happened is that it was really hot in Sydney over the weekend. We had 28, 30 degree days, sunny, and people flocked to Bondi Beach and beaches in the eastern suburbs in general. And a lot of people weren't wearing masks. And there was a lot of outrage because people in Western Sydney who obviously do not have access to beaches or like kind of any outdoor amenities at the moment are cooped up in their homes. If you live in a Sydney LDF concern, like I actually currently do in Southwest Sydney, We, at the time, like during that weekend, were only allowed to be outside if we were actively exercising and we weren't allowed any outdoor recreation. As of now, because rules changed on Monday, now we're allowed two hours of outdoor recreation. So I can sit outside and read for two hours and then I have to be back inside my house unless I'm actively exercising. And on top of that, there's obviously been a really high police presence in Western Sydney. There's been literal military personnel. I think the government, like I think the police commissioner first requested 300 and then 500 personnel. So there's about 800-ish 
military personnel walking around Western Sydney in their fucking army uniforms, terrorizing like random people just trying to go for a walk. And it's made people afraid. Like people are afraid to put their fucking bins out after 9 p.m. because we got a curfew and they don't want to get fined. And New South Wales Health already has said, and I've called up New South Wales Health and Service New South Wales to ask questions about like, can I do this and can I do that? And they're always like, yeah, like under health orders, that behavior is allowed, but it is up to police discretion. An example of that is intimate partner visits, which are covered under compassionate care. Um, so your intimate partner can visit you whether or not you live alone in Sydney, anywhere in Sydney. However, a friend of mine called to ask if he could see his girlfriend, just like just to be sure, because he was anxious, because he's also from one of the really heavily policed areas. And Service in the Wells was like, under public health orders, you can, but also a police officer can choose to find you. Which, like, is not fucking helpful information at all, right? So, like, there's this huge police presence. Nobody really knows what's right or wrong. Nobody feels comfortable doing things that are perfectly legal, like seeing your partner. And then on the other side, we're seeing people in Bondi, like, being allowed to go to the beach. And, like, a lot of the time being at the beach maskless and not social distancing are still kind of, like, not really facing any consequences for that. And there's been a lot of anger from Western Sydney who are like, okay, so why the fuck are we so heavily policed and Bondi isn't? And I do want to make a note that that doesn't mean that people are calling for Bondi to get fucked over by cops. You know, it's a reaction to an unfair situation in terms of policing. And there were heaps of media choppers and stuff covering like the Bondi area, lots of really sensational headlines being like, look at this, you know, New South Wales records 1,500 cases and yet look at all the people in Bondi. And it's just a bit of a, bit of a fucking shit show. And then New South Wales uh, Minister for Health, Brad Hazard, then kind of went out and was like, look, I know we're seeing really sensationalized images, but fresh air is the safest place to be. So like, it's fine if people want to go to the beach, leave them alone, which I, I don't disagree with. Like, I personally don't think that there's a problem with going to the beach. Like if it's within your 5Ks and you're social distancing and you're wearing a mask, like, I don't really see the problem. But the issue here is people in Western Sydney aren't allowed to be outside for outdoor recreation. Like the fucking double standards of, oh, fresh air is the safest place to be unless you're in Western Sydney, in which case you're not allowed to leave your house unless you're doing this very specific thing. Like it's absurd. I feel like that's a very real and genuine issue. And to me, it sounds like it sounds so obvious. It seems obvious. And I wrote an article for Pedestrian TV, which I'll link in the sources, and it's already on my Instagram, so you've probably already read it if you follow me, just about like the disparities and the tensions and why people in Western Sydney are so frustrated because they're being punished for something that is out of their control. This pandemic affected everybody, and it started in the eastern suburbs and then made its way towards Western Sydney. And naturally, it's worse there because there's a denser population. The labor is concentrated as well in Western Sydney. All of A lot of your Uber drivers and your delivery orders and all that are manned by people from these areas. Like a lot of the food that you, all of the labor is there. So naturally, when people are going to move around as laborers under this economic system, like COVID is going to move with them. It's going to happen. And it's not like a reflection of the people. But there just seems to be a treatment of Western Sydney as being like immoral or bad or dirty. And that's why COVID is there. And it's really problematic. And even if the health officials don't directly say that, the way that they're implementing policy and the way that they're deploying police officers and military personnel imply that. Like the military is supposed to fight the quote unquote enemy, even at other times where they've come in to help. They've helped the bushfires. They've helped with floods. But like they've been helping against a force that is not like human in that regard. But the optics of sending like military personnel into Western Sydney implies that the people of Western Sydney are the enemy, they're the problem, they're the danger. It's obviously like quite racist and classist, especially because Brad Hazard also previously said that it's people of other cultures, quote unquote, that are causing COVID spread, which again is racist. So to me, that's quite obvious, but like so much white tears again. And like, well, were you this mad when North Sydney was in lockdown last year? Did you care when it was other white areas? And it's like, no, I didn't because it wasn't the same situation. Like North Sydney was not locked down for three months. There wasn't this huge military and police operation. We also didn't have vaccines back then. Like People in Western Sydney are vaccinating at really high rates, obviously, because they're in the lockdown LGAs and they're not going to see freedom until they vaccinate. Like, it's just, there's so much villainizing happening here. And it's just really, it's really infuriating because people keep centering the idea of, oh, so you don't want Bondi people to go to the beach? Like, you want them to be punished because you don't have those freedoms? And it's like, no, that's not what this is about. And we got to stop pitting this 
as like a Western Sydney versus Bondi civilians because that's not what the conversation is. The conversation isn't about the individuals. The conversation isn't even about the people that live in Bondi. The conversation is about the government enforcement. The conversation is about the state enforcement. It's about the police. It's about the military. The, the conversation we're having right now is about power imbalance. So let's not get lost in these like unproductive conversations about like who can and can't go to the beach and if we should have more police at Bondi because we never want more police anyway. We don't want police in general. Police can't enforce anything and police are not the answer to a pandemic. Like police are not health officials. So I just like really want to highlight what that conversation is about and it is about the power imbalance between these two areas, the class differences, the racial differences and the state authority being enforced around there. It's not about, like, giving a fuck about who goes to the beach. Yeah, and even just thinking about uh, who can access the beach and who can't, I think it also shows uh, disparities that existed before COVID, of course, but just access to certain sort of uh, recreation or or facilities. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's also just... There was a tweet that I saw that I think really exemplified it. And they were like, oh, so if you can afford to live near a beach, then you may go to the beach. And I feel like that is kind of, yeah, a good point. It's like with the five kilometer restrictions, the problem with those, I guess, if we're going to talk about like a class equality lens, is that what's within five kilometers of somebody living in my area is very different to what's in five kilometers of somebody living in Bondi. And naturally, suburbs with beaches are wealthier suburbs and generally have a class of people with a higher income who can afford to live there. And yeah, like lockdowns and especially like kilometer limits really show those inequalities and put them to light because people in Bondi largely have their circle unaffected, especially because like it's a thing in Sydney in Bondi to not leave like the eastern suburbs. It's like a thing because... It's like a classist thing. A lot of people in Bondi don't really leave Bondi for any social events or whatever. So they're like in their insulated upper class bubble and that's fine. But people in like Western Sydney or in Southwestern Sydney like often need to leave their area to do anything like cool, right? Like just because of the way that the city sprawls, like a lot of us go to the city for things and that is obviously more than five kilometers away from us. And so even if you look at what you have access to for like outdoor recreation, like kind of nothing, Kind of nothing, um, especially because I saw these tweets going around about basketball like hoops being taken down and like courts and stuff being taped off so that people physically cannot do outdoor recreation, which is fucked because outdoor recreation like is something that other places are entitled to and we should be entitled to do it under just health advice. Like if outdoors is the safest place to be and we've had like no transmission of COVID outdoors, why the fuck can't people in Western Sydney go and play basketball outside? Yeah, and as we know, wealthier areas have access to more greenery. There's typically more trees planted. There's there's nicer parks and more funds are given to these types of activities. And I feel like I'm lucky enough to live in a very big LGA. So I have access to stuff like a local skate park and some nice parks, but a lot of people don't. And of course, these inequities existed before COVID. It's just interesting how COVID uh, brings them even more to the forefront. The next topic we're going to talk about is about like COVID and like lockdown and the roadmap to freedom specifically, like the way kind of this, I guess we're mostly talking from a New South Wales perspective because that's where we live. Um, but the way that our state government has kind of really fucked up <laughs> a lot of this COVID situation, but also like a lot of the implications of what that means socially. Because something that a few people have reached out and asked me to talk about is the fact that New South Wales is planning to open at 70% to 80% vaccinated for, for adults. So 70% to 80% of the eligible adult population being vaccinated, I think translates to about 50% of the actual population, like including children and non-eligible adults, which actually doesn't seem that high when you put it like that. And Gladys Berejiklian, the New South Wales Premier, has kind of said multiple times that like, yes, people are going to die as part of us opening up, but it's like a necessary thing that is going to happen and it's unavoidable and we can't be in lockdown forever. And there's been a lot of mixed commentary about that. I think people are either like, yes, we need to open up. Small businesses aren't surviving. People are really struggling with not working as well with retail stores being closed because we don't have JobKeeper anymore. So people are like really kind of struggling with money. There are like all these economic financial reasons to open up. And also ending lockdown will end some of the over 
policing in Western Sydney, Algiers as well, because there won't be any need for police or military to be in those areas anymore. So, like, on one hand, there's a lot of reasons why that's useful and potentially going to be safer for, like, certain minorities. And then the other side to that conversation is, oh, so we're just going to sacrifice, like, vulnerable people. So, like, we're just going to fucking forget about everybody who's immunocompromised and couldn't be vaccinated. We're going to forget about old people. We're going to forget about young children that aren't vaccinated and are probably going to get COVID at school and spread it around. Like, what about those people? Actually, this is very ableist. Like, there is ableism. It feels a bit eugenics-y to just be like, yeah, fuck those people. They're going to, like, some people are going to die and it's just a necessary way that things are going to happen. And, like, neither of those are wrong, in my opinion. Like, it is ableist to just be like, yeah, some people are going to die. Some people are more vulnerable and, like, that sucks, I guess, but it'd be good for the rest of us. Like, that is ableist. But on the other hand, like, it is also going to, like, opening up is also going to protect a lot of minorities from potential brutalization from police. It is. Not that police violence will fucking stop in these areas, but it'd be a lot easier to move around if you don't have cops constantly trying to fucking arrest you all the time. Like the kind of footage that we've seen, especially in like Bass Hill and Bankstown, has been awful. There was like a man in Bass Hill recently who has a like health condition. He's got a heart condition. I think he had a mask potentially had a mask exemption or he was saying he had one when the police approached him for not wearing a mask and he refused to talk to them and walked away. They fucking tackled him to the ground. He like passed out because of his heart condition they handcuffed him and then defibrillated him and he was in handcuffs that whole time like it was really distressing i don't recommend watching the video that's floating around but like this is dangerous and he could have died right from police violence it's a complicated conversation and there's this really interesting abc article which i will link in the sources and i think it'll come up again in our next section that kind of discusses the way we're approaching this in terms of pros and cons and the way like leftist groups should be talking about lockdown and ending lockdown and our approach because there's no approach that's going to be good for everybody there just isn't we have to choose like a fucking minority like it's terrible and there's no right answer and i honestly like don't know where i stand because on the one hand it is ableist and i don't want to fucking enable ableism by ending lockdown at 70 percent when the official health advice is to end it at 85 percent and obviously like we're pro-science and we're pro-health advice but at the same time i really want the fucking cops and military out of western sydney yeah and what was so awful about you know that story in bass hill it shows how sort of aggressive and sort of on the offense the police have been it's like you're guilty unless proven otherwise yes. it's you know the burden of proof isn't on them to suggest that you're doing something wrong it's yes. and that's how you feel i mean that's how i feel just driving here it's like i feel like i'm doing something wrong until exactly that's kind of what i was trying to say earlier about like the way everybody is so fucking scared all the time like you will be doing the right thing and not like i i walk to my local grocery shop because it's about a seven minute walk for me and i am paranoid the entire time i walk there with my little woolies bag and my fucking mask thinking oh my god like a cop is gonna stop me and they're gonna be like why the fuck are you outside even though like i literally can be outside but everybody's paranoid because they don't need to have a reason to find you like, and that's literally true. You can look this up. I'll put in the sources, actually. But the police commissioner, like, told police cadets that to find first and ask questions later. Like, they don't give a fuck about whether or not. And he's already told them that they won't face consequences for wrongly finding people. So, like, the police are on the offensive right now. And they're literally just looking for excuses to fuck people up. And, like, yeah, it makes me concerned. And everybody is fucking scared. Yeah. And I think when it comes to what I think the approach should be. I don't think and I never really think that we should be policing individual people like controlling or surveilling or policing the movement of specific bodies. But it should be more the policy should have a more institutional focus. So that is our certain businesses open because I think people generally want to do the right thing. I agree. And I think what has a greater effect than putting really strict laws on individual people's movements is what places can you access? And I think that's what we saw earlier when there was a sort of disparity between, oh, you're not allowed to leave the house, but you can go to like Kmart or retail shops. There was really conflicting messages, which we talked about on the podcast. And I think ultimately it's the latter. It's if you can go to the shops, then you can assume that you can go to the shops. Uh, And so then in that case, the individual policing and the policing of individual bodies sort of is superseded by that. But if you just close the shops, then you don't really need to put all these laws on individual people because they're not going to go out anyways. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to react more to what they can and can't do in terms of what's open and what facilities are open. And then 
how many police are on the road. Yeah, and a really good point to that, I think, and an example of that is curfew in Western Sydney because we're currently under a 5am to 9pm curfew and it's these 12 LGAs that are the only places under a curfew right now in New South Wales. And John Barilaro, who is the Deputy Premier of New South Wales, literally said in a press conference with regional journalists who were asking him if he's going to put Dubbo under a curfew, he said, no, because curfews don't work. And the only reason that Western Sydney is under one is because of media push. Like, are you exactly? Because people were just like, what? Why do you need a 9 p.m. curfew if nothing is open? We can't go anywhere. And you know what? It's really frustrating because, like, I want to go for a fucking walk sometimes. I finish work at 11 p.m., I work from 2 30 to 11. (laughs) Like, the curfew fucking sucks. Like, It's so frustrating. I can't walk to the server and buy an ice cream because I might get arrested for breaking curfew when I'm outdoors doing nothing wrong and nothing is open. It's useless and there's no health advice. There's actually like no fucking evidence that curfews are helpful at all during a pandemic. And it's it's unnecessary because we've already got rules in place that have closed the places that people socialize. So what difference does a curfew make aside from just making people fearful and scared? Exactly. And yeah, I think more is said in terms of what businesses are allowed to be open than individual movement. And it seems that all that this policing of individuals' movements really do is create resent. Yeah, and also it like makes people more aggressive, which is a cycle. Like I just saw yesterday in the news, a man in Western Sydney was arrested for assaulting two police officers. Apparently they approached him and like we're trying to ask him some questions about mask wearing or whatever. And he like shoved one and like punched the other and then ran. And it's like, I mean, I can see why he did that because like for a lot of people and honestly, especially for men, fear responses can come out in aggression, right? If you see a cop approaching you and you just like saw in the news cycle yesterday that some guy nearly fucking died because like police tackled him and hurt you're scared of the fucking cops like all especially like in western sydney a lot of these like macho ethnic men like are scared of the cops because like as men of color they're going to be seen as aggressive whatever they do and they're afraid that they're going to get hurt and so naturally they respond with aggression as like as like a defense mechanism towards cops and it's just a violent cycle because then he responded aggressively and he like assaulted the cops and then, of course, he got fucking arrested. And, like, it's just it's just ongoing. And then the cops use those stories to then be more aggressive to other men of the same culture, race, or area. Because, like, clearly all these men are violent and evil. And it's just, like, it's fucked. Exactly. And, of course, it would be scary. Because you know that simply doing the right thing isn't enough. It yeah. doesn't necessarily protect the you from useless. having... The law is useless. Yeah, exactly. The law is useless. And I think that's probably the key reason why so many and this is like slightly going back to the western sydney bondi situation but like that's why western sydney is so resentful because this has really shone the light on how useless the law is and if you don't trust in the law anymore which i imagine a lot of people used to like if you don't trust the law to be fair then like what do you believe in anymore like what's the point of being a good citizen of this society that abuses you doesn't give a fuck about you and doesn't care if you're doing the right thing anyway Like, it's just, it's going to create toxic cycles. It's going to cause dissent and resentment and violence. And it's, like, fair. It's fair that people feel that way. What do they owe a government that doesn't give a fuck about them? And that's not to excuse, like, people who are being fucking, you know, anti-maskers or anti-vaxxers. It's not. But like we said previously in another discussion around this, the way that people in Western Sydney are revolting against the government and potentially revolting against lockdown measures, their understanding is reasonable. Their feelings are reasonable. So for our next topic, I really wanted to talk about a sort of a grouping of three or four stories, which I think represent a really problematic and emerging trend in terms of the increasing uh, technological power and surveillance of governments and police during COVID and just generally. Because there were a few stories uh, that emerged in the past month, which I really didn't hear about until a couple of weeks after. So not only do I want to bring this to people's attention, but also I think partly the fact we didn't really hear about this also is important to how uh, dangerous they're becoming. So I think the common theme will begin to emerge. I'll just start to uh, explain some of them. The first one is, while not being super 
well reported in the news. At the end of August, South Australia began trialing a home-based quarantine app for people traveling from New South Wales and Victoria. And essentially, the way the app works is that it will contact people quarantining at home at random times. And once you're notified, you have 15 minutes to confirm your identity and location to ensure that you're where you're meant to be and you're who you're meant to be. Then when you get notified, the app uses biometric data like facial recognition to confirm your identity and then geolocation data uh, to make sure you are in your home and where you're meant to be. And if you fail to respond to the notification within that 15 minutes, the app will notify the police, which will then be sent to check in on you. God, imagine just like being in the shower and I sometimes take like 30 minute showers and then like you just hear the doorbell ring and like cops shut your fucking door. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Stressful. And it's like, while there's no doubt that, I mean, this specific app is totalitarian in the most literal sense in terms of it's literally focused entirely on the movement of people's bodies and people's bodies themselves in terms of the the facial recognition technology, which literally is connected to your body as well as your geolocation, which tracks your movement throughout the world. I just want to say, like, all these fucking people being afraid of, like, 5G trackers in your vaccine, honey, they already track you. Everything you do is already accessible. All the metadata exists. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And while it needs to be said that it's currently just under trial with 50 participants, uh, so they did opt in. I think it's clear that the government even testing this type of surveillance technology is extremely worrying. Not only just for typical privacy reasons, right? But it highlights this trend of governments attempting to turn everyday life, all aspects of life into something that can be captured, recorded, and controlled, right? And monitored. Mm -hmm. But what I thought was really interesting about this whole ordeal is that I didn't really come across it through Australian media, uh, but only until it started to become a talking point in American media, uh, which I think is so interesting, the the journey Australia has gone on during Mm. during the whole COVID thing. Like last year, we were the the model country, like because I guess we're a little hermit country surrounded by water down there on the map. Uh, and then now it was what well, actually Australia is doing really fucking awful in terms yeah, of the vaccine Yeah, we like totally response. fucked up. And then now we're seeing all these reports from both like obvious conservative outlets like Fox News as well as more left-leaning sites like The Atlantic questioning whether Australia can really call itself a liberal democracy anymore. And while both, for, for example, Fox News and Atlantic called the, the strict lockdown measures and the app Orwellian, which, I mean, I cringe at anyone that really I was going to say, like, not the that there's anything wrong with the word Orwellian, but it is a red flag when somebody uses it. I'm like, hmm. Well, I just associate <laughs> it with these, like, right-wing grifter yeah. pundits. Yeah. Uh, I, I just think of, like, Jordan Peterson. I feel the same way Orwellian. now about the word freedom, to be honest. Exactly, like Freedom yeah. is, like, a fine and empty word, but it's just a little bit tainted, isn't it? Exactly. But I think there is some truth to what they say. Uh, I wanted to read this quote from The Atlantic, with this sort of scathing polemic. Uh, which is just very amusing. Atlantic says, quote, Australia is undoubtedly a democracy with multiple political parties, regular elections, and the peaceful transfer of power. But if a country indefinitely forbids its own citizens from leaving its borders, strands tens of thousands of citizens abroad, puts strict rules on interstate travel, prohibits citizens from leaving home without an excuse from an official government list, mandates masks even when people are outdoors and socially distanced, deploys the military to enforce those rules, bans protests and arrests and fine dissenters, is that country still a liberal democracy? Man, when you put it like that. Right? (laughs) Like not to be like a freedom protester, but it is true. I think especially something that like no one in Australia seems to talk about is the fact that like there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Australian citizens like banned from coming to the country. Like That is so fucked up. What the fuck is the point of being an Australian citizen? Like, what is the point of having a citizenship if you can't enter your own country? That's like the only thing a citizenship really. Yeah, it's the only thing it's useful for. You can't like. It's the only two things that a citizenship is useful for is being able to enter the country whenever you want and not being deported. And like Peter Dutton has already tried before to be able to strip people of their citizenship and deport them. And now they've like banned people from coming to the country because of like COVID or whatever. And it's just like this. Like, this is making your citizenship quite useless. I mean, what's interesting is that it took until, like, the US to really acknowledge that maybe some things aren't going so great here. Because I feel like there's a weird divide. It's like, if you're right wing, then you have to be against the lockdown because it 
encroaches on your freedoms. Like your personal freedoms. Yeah. But then if you're left wing, you have to be pro lockdown in like the most complete sense. And I don't yes. really know exactly where I'm standing. Okay. Okay. I actually want to say something about that because the ABC article that I mentioned earlier, which I will link, is exactly about that. Mm. Like it is exactly about the fact that because right wing people have really kind of taken this anti-government, anti-lockdown, anti-mask, whatever stance, because left people are in opposition to right wing people, the assumption is, okay, well, if they hate lockdown, we have to like love it and be really pro we lockdown. We have to compensate. We have to compensate. Well, we have to be the opposite of whatever they are. Like we exist in an opposition to them, which is like really interesting because we should all be anti like state anyway. Like it's interesting that right wing and left wing people are, are all anti like state government and anti governments in general. But like there's definitely a lot of lefty and like liberal lefty groups like being fucking sycophantic and like pro like the state government. And they're just doing their best guys because right wing people are hating on them and they think they have to be the opposite. And it's like, we can be critical of the extreme power misuse that seems to be happening right in front of our eyes with lockdown and with COVID. Like, we can be critical of the government fucking taking advantage of a crisis to, like, do this, like, power overhaul. And you can acknowledge that without, like, being, like, a right-wing freedom protester. And I think you're right. There's this huge, like, polarization and it's kind of like you're either one or the other. And that's just, like, not how politics works. And that ABC article is really interesting because it's quite scathing and it's calling out of, like, Australian progressive thinkers and writers because, like, there has been really limited commentary in Australia that is critical of lockdown measures, that is critical of the government like fucking terrifying approaches to the way they want to surveil everyone that is from like left-wing thinkers like a lot of that is from like right-wing people that are using that as an agenda for their own like fucking bullshit politics and like there's no actual good criticism from left-wing people because everyone's too afraid to do that because they don't want to be associated with like freedom protesters and it's like that is like legitimately an issue because i'm like you mitch like i'm obviously not like yes we should end lockdown and everybody should just like fucking spread covid everywhere But at the same time, I am really critical of the way lockdown has been weaponized by the government. And a really good example is all the stuff we just talked about in Western Sydney. Like lockdown is being used as an excuse by the police to put like unnecessary punitive measures on like marginalized people. You know, and we can be critical of that and like not be right wing. Like, I feel like a lot of this issue is like it's very liberal. It's very liberal politics. It's more obsessed with the aesthetic than it is about, like, actually having a critical discussion. Yeah, exactly. And then when it comes back to that South Australia uh, app, I think we should be concerned because if they're testing this sort of technology, it's probably because they want to use this type of thing post-COVID, you know. I think there's a trend of law enforcement and government into wanting to get technology and uh, surveillance software into every aspect of everyday life And where they have data, they will use it. Uh, Another example of that is what I wanted to talk about, the the use of the COVID check-in data by police to solve unrelated crimes. Which is so fucked up. It's fucked up. I thought that was illegal because I, okay, I remember, was this in New South Wales? It was, Uh right? Yeah. So I remember when the check-in app initially was suggested before we had to use the service in the world's apps. Originally, you just hand signed it and you just wrote down the thing and apps like weren't really being used or like you could use apps, but we weren't necessarily using the service in the world's app. And I like literally waited. I was doing everything hand signed in and I literally waited until like everywhere it was mandatory to use the service in the world's app before I downloaded it because of this exact thing. I fucking knew this was going to happen. And I was like talking about it before and I was just like, what are the odds that like they're just going to give this to the cops? Like what are the odds that the cops are just going to access this? And so, and like everybody was thinking that, like it wasn't like just me being like woke or whatever, like this was like an issue. And I'm like pretty sure, I'm very sure that there was like conversation from the government about it being really secure And, like, it's going to be fine. Like, don't worry, guys. And then now, like, they are using your check-in data, which they fucking... It just seems like such a, like, violation of just the law process in general. Like, even if we talk about things like permissible evidence in, like, the court system. Like, I just... This is fucked that they can do this. It's actually fucked. Like, it just... It's not even consistent. It's... I mean, the legal system is not something to rely on anyway, but it's not even consistent with the legal system and the way that evidence can be submitted in court. But it's like, it's fucked. Imagine like you're trying to do the right thing and check in 
And like the reason that we are doing this is because we are like deciding to put our faith in the system to be fair to us for be- for doing the right thing and checking in. And then like they just let cops use this data. Like you're actually just turning off everybody from even like checking in in the first place. And why should they? Why should they if you're going to give that data to the cops? Exactly. And I mean, not only is it a, a massive breach of privacy and a breach of trust. Mm. Um, you and I were having a conversation yesterday about the nature of privacy and I was thinking of a writer I've been reading recently called Mackenzie Walk. And she said something like, she's not necessarily for the concept of privacy, but what she finds concerning is an asymmetry of sharing. Mm. So it's that law enforcement and government, we have to share everything with them, our location, our facial uh, data, these these biometric datas. But we know nothing about them. We yeah, don't get we to don't know, know how they're using police. it. Yeah, we don't know how they're using it. And we also don't know where the location of police, for example, that's all. You know, yeah, it's, I don't know what the fucking box. police operations are and where they're concentrated. And I agree because, look, the conversation of privacy is a complex one. It is. Like, there's, it's hard to balance, like, the need for privacy and then, like, the need for, like, collective safety. And it's also, like, a weird conversation because it would differ depending on the, like, government and economic system that you are under. And, like, under an ideal world, these won't even be issues. But, like, they are issues because we live under capitalism and we live under, like, authoritarian fucking governments that, like, are actively mining information they shouldn't have access to. And sort of ending this trinity of worrying stories uh, at around the same time as the introduction of the SA app. Uh, the Australian government also passed the Identity and Disrupt Bill, which gives police new powers to surveil cyber criminals, take control of pretty much any online accounts and delete or modify these accounts. So this bill was unsurprisingly supported by both Labour and Liberal and quickly passed all while I guess the media has been focused on COVID because this is an yeah, extremely that's fucked up. This is extremely concerning and deals exactly with what we're talking about with you know the SA app and the uh, breach of trust with the QR codes. It's, it's just, all about like the increasing of police powers at the end of the day, and it just makes it easier for them to arrest you. Yeah, exactly. And while digital technology has of course been fantastic in the world, it's also given uh, governments and law enforcement new unprecedented access to, I guess, every minute detail of everyday life uh, and your individual life. And the especially worrying part is that these uh, new powers can be triggered for pretty much any Commonwealth offences punishable by a maximum term of three years or more. Three years is not a lot. And that's the maximum of three years. So the minimum could be like significantly lower. Exactly. So like something that could get you jailed for six months. Yeah, and, and that's and that's the whole thing. It's like when the government wants to pass these laws, uh, they use the big boogeyman of terrorism mm. and child exploitation. Mm. When really, as a Labour MP uh, suggested, that only having a minimum of three years meant that quote tax offences, trademark infringements, and a range of other offences would enliven the powers, not just you know child abuse and exploitation. Well, literally, and like if I like wrote an article and used like a picture that I downloaded online and didn't like have access to that could be used against me, which it seems like a fucking small crime, right? And isn't that exactly what sort of underpins all these discussions of these evolving powers? Yeah. Uh, We must evoke the most unspeakable truths of terrorism and exploitation of children. Though, of course, these warrants will mostly be used to suppress sort of low-level subversive activity. And even if if it doesn't do so directly... Simply knowing that the government has access to this overwhelming surveillance power will do the policing anyways, because people will stop engaging in these types of yeah, activities. Yeah, bit of a panopticon kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like with the panopticon, once people internalize the surveillance, the actual apparatus of surveillance becomes superfluous. Yeah, like I think this is kind of the overarching theme even potentially of the episode. It's just like the government really taking advantage of crisis to push their own like kind of evil agendas be it lockdown and like covid quarantine um surveillance or like we've seen before i think i'm pretty sure we've spoken about it in another episode but just like the terror laws in australia and how like we've literally like 9-11 didn't even happen here and we just like introduced all these really extreme like our terror laws have been condemned by other countries for like completely violating human rights people can be held indefinitely under australian terror laws without a charge which is fucking wild like 
the fact that you can hold somebody in detention indefinitely for something that you don't even know they've done is wrong. <laughs> like, I think anybody can agree that that's wrong. And that's legal under Australian terror laws. And like, they can accuse like a lot of people of terrorism. And under terror laws, knowing somebody who is potentially going to like commit a terror act also means that you can be held too. So if like someone I met once or like a friend of mine ended up being exposed for like terror stuff, I could be held just by knowing them because potentially that means I know something, which is like so wrong. I feel like when the terror laws came out, because I was in like, I think I was in first year uni when that happened. There was like new terror laws because I remember UNSW did a paper on it. And like there was a lot of fear and outrage from people that like care about human rights. But because COVID has just been like at the forefront of our minds and because there's like this weird issue with the left like being too afraid to oppose actually fucked up COVID measures because they don't want to sound like freedom protesters. It means that the government is just like passing all these like absurdly dangerously like terrifying new measures and nobody is holding them accountable and nobody's even talking about it. Like Mitch said, we didn't even know about this shit until America started talking about it. Nobody in Australia is being critical because nobody wants to be branded and like cancelled. All right, our final topic for today is about the new activism game show that is apparently coming to American TV soon. So this new game show called The Activist essentially like pits a bunch of celebrity activists against each other. Actually, okay, I'm going to read you a section from somebody who was recruited for The Activist and then said no. And so she said... That the email that she got stated the show would center six activists who would go head to head to, quote, promote their causes, aka like health, climate, education, and their success would be measured via online engagement, social metrics, and hosts' input. Ridiculous, but I'll get into why. So the kinds of people that are going to be on this activism game show, and mind you, like it is important to note that these aren't like actual, like, real people out there on the front lines. These are like celebrity activists. Priyanka Chopra is on this list. Like noted warmonger Priyanka Chopra is on this list. So that tells you everything you need to know. It's going to be like a CBS series and it's going to be six celebrity activists. I think the three confirmed are Asha, Priyanka Chopra and Julianne Ho, Hugh, I don't know how her name is pronounced. Personally, I don't care. She's a white woman that committed blackface, so she's irrelevant to me. Like, these are the people, though. Like, doesn't that just show you, like, this, the fucking, like, level of quote-unquote activism? One of the women, one of the women on this literally committed blackface. Um, there's a really good Diet Prada post that, like, puts up a picture of her in blackface, and it is bad. <laughs> but the reason that, like, we're talking about this today is because it is so ridiculous it feels like a fever dream. Like, in our Lord and Saviour's year of 2020, we are really seeing a show called The Activist that trivializes activism as like a fun thing you do. And I think it's so telling that the way the activism success is measured is through online engagement and social metrics. What is... So, okay, your post didn't get enough likes. Sorry, you're out for this week of The Activist. You may pack your bags and go home. Like, what? Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to say it frames... The the reason you would do activism is for social clout well it just feels like girl just put a bunch of like marketing interns onto a game show together isn't that what they do with their black tiles and their like Mm. you know like this like really fake kind of corporate quote-unquote activism it's just like it just bastardizes activism so much because like it really pushes this i feel like often upper middle class western perception of activism as social media posts activism is talking about things because that's not really what activism is limited to at all and it's also just insulting especially in america because like this is all about like social posts like this they are literally measuring the success of these quote-unquote activists by how many fucking likes and shit they get and it's like meanwhile instagram and facebook and whatever are like actually shadow banning legitimate activists and particularly black and native american activists uh for like putting up radical dissenting content and like standing up for themselves and participating in real activism i feel like what's this do it's just watering down activism to make it palatable because capitalism ruins everything that would be interesting if that was part of the show, though. They have to navigate the shadow bands. <laughs> oh, you got shadow bands. Sorry, you're eliminated. No, so the final two battled it out by both getting shadow banned and then seeing who can get the most likes while still being right. shadow banned. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but like, yeah, like, 
what? It's just so, it's so silly. It's so silly. And it's insulting. It's insulting that it limits and like waters down and ruins activism and makes, and also it's, it's dangerous because what it does is it makes people complacent. Like if people think this is what activism is, which is already an issue that is happening right now, like already at the moment, I think a huge issue with activism is not enough people are radical anymore. And people genuinely believe putting up an infographic on Instagram is activism when it's not. Showing up is activism, creating physical change, protesting, like dissenting, that is activism. Which like actual activists are out there doing and they're getting arrested and pepper sprayed and maimed and in some countries murdered. Well, actually, I say some countries. How many of the Black Lives Matter organizers from the Ferguson riots in America turned out like dead? Like almost all of them have been killed since then. It's actually terrifying and fucked up because activism is something you have to put your body on the line for. And people die. People die for their causes. People are getting killed for their causes. You know, I just think it's shocking that they would put this like, so you think you can help, like you think you can create change to get these TikTok likes. Meanwhile, like Native American protesters in America are putting their bodies on the line to try and stop oil pipelines from ruining their reserves. Like this is happening at the same time in the same world in the same fucking country. And I think it's just an example of like how if capitalism is threatened by something, it will ruin it. It will make it, it will water it down. It'll make it palatable to the point of it not being threatening anymore. You know, a really good example of that is like corporate feminism. Like feminism initially as like a movement was like, you know, dangerous for the status quo and like actually something important and doing something huge. And then we got girl boss corporate feminism, which like watered it down and made it palatable. And now it's no longer a threat because now this can function within capitalism. And if anything, can further capitalism because you're going to sell your t-shirts with like lipstick prints on it saying girl boss or whatever. And, you know, buy my t-shirt, you're supporting, you know, a woman-led business. And it just like completely ruins the concept, right? And I just think this is like the most extreme example. Like I did not expect this to be on my 2021 bingo card, but it is. And also the worst part is like, they could have at least, I mean, not that it would have been good either way, but like they really picked celebrities that like are already rich for this game show when they could have like put on a bunch of like radical activists and then funded their activities or something. Like this is so, this, it just shows to you how disingenuous it is, how it has nothing to do with activism, which is obvious from the start, but like it's made more obvious by the fact that nobody is actually going to benefit from this show. Like, y'all have the budget to create a show. Just fucking, like, fund an actual activist's cause. You can film it too. Yeah, you can <laughs> film it. And, like, just, like, fucking send a camera crew with a Black Lives Matter protest. Like, there are ways you could do this that are, like, not as evil, like, as blatantly evil. Like, it's a evil. little bit evil, but it's less evil than It's this. less evil. It's less evil. And also just, like... And so this is what somebody commented on Diet Prada that I think is a really good point. While already like fucking just completely changing the meaning of activism to something non-threatening that like can still function on capitalism without causing change. It also then implies that activism is something that activists do and not like everyday citizens should be doing every day of their lives, which I think is a really good point. Like everybody should be some form of an activist at all times. Like every day that you exist in this world and benefit, especially for us, like benefiting off of colonized land every day, we have a moral responsibility to oppose oppression at all times and to do the best we can to oppose that at all times, be it, you know, like talking about it, changing people's minds, going to protest, donating to causes, like whatever it is, there are so many ways to like practice behaviors that are anti-oppression or that support marginalized people. And to make it seem like activism is like rich celebrities putting money into causes or that activism is just like putting up a post and getting it lots of likes, people know what you're talking about. It makes it seem like we don't have to do these things. This is what activists do. So it's like, it's fucked twice. It's fucked in many ways. But this, is, this is a bit of a double whammy there, right? And also just in terms of um, like how the show was created. So there's um, an Instagram influencer called Kim and she talks about why she's declined to be on The Activist and because they like approached her because she does like, um, like, you know, those like Instagram infographics and she's like a bit of an activist herself. Uh, and so she was the one who was talking about how the email stated that like, Six activists go head to head to promote their causes, blah, 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 online engagement, social metrics. And the person who sent the email told her via a phone call that they had reached out to 10 social media creators to help promote the activists. 
So the, like, as in she wasn't approached to be like an activist on the show. She's a content creator. She was approached to help promote the activist causes by posting to her platform and attending their causes in person in LA. And she wasn't offered payment for that as well. Like it was just like a, you'll get exposure, like come create content for us and hang out with our celebrities in LA and like that'd be enough, which again is so ironic because the show is literally about activism and social engagement and then they wouldn't even pay the person that will give them that social engagement. <laughs> and on top of that, the email didn't even dis- disclose like who the hosts or the activists were. She, Cause she asked, she was like, well, who are the activists going to be? And they were like, it's a surprise. Like, Imagine, like, you have to tell people who it is. What if you put, like, a fucking rapist on there? Which, honestly, wouldn't be surprising because most men in these, like, celebrity circles are, like, fucking predators. So, like, you would need to know who it is. And I'm, I'm fucking glad she said no because now we've got Priyanka Chopra, warmonger, and the other woman who committed blackface. That are, like, the t- I'm not surprised about Priyanka Chopra, to be honest. This is a Priyanka Chopra slander account. <laughs> I fucking hate her. I, I think a lot of Desi people really can't stand her because she's just embarrassing for us. But anyway, so the whole thing is just fucked. Like from the way the show like even exists, the function of it, the way they've approached people and like the politics of it are all really bad. And I think the key takeaway here is that capitalism ruins literally everything and we just have to really try hard not to let all these like legitimately radical things become these cute little wholesome Instagram posts. And like we really have to make the effort to not let capitalism take that away from us. Being radical is the only thing we have left. Like, being radical is, like, the only anti-capitalist thing you can really do. And we should keep doing it. Cool. Well, thanks for listening to our little variety episode. I think now is a good time to talk about our lovely sponsors for the episode. You, our listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Pia, Sarah, Liz, Bell, and Katie. So, thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from... Please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Sleha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also do a one-off donation to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Sleha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Sleha Official and give me a follow if you like today's episode. And actually, you know what? I just realized my link in bio is just my link tree. Maybe we should just add that to our links. In the podcast description. Okay. So I'll add that link to the podcast description. We can do that. <laughs> uh, and go to my Instagram at mishes.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. And another link tree to the aforementioned uh, algorithm exclusion. Algorithmic yes. Go exclusion to Mitch's essay. Instagram and read his essay. It's very good and you'll like it. Thank you. And also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at podcast at gmail.com. And if you email us, please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. Cool. Bye. Bye.